the Honorable Chief Justice and Associate Justices of the Supreme Court of North Carolina. Oh yes, oh yes, oh yes, the Supreme Court of North Carolina has resumed sitting for the dispatch of business. God save the state and this honorable court. Good morning. Our next case is State versus Waterfield, and we will hear from the appellant. Thank you, Chief Justice. Good morning, Your Honors. May it please the court. Jim Grant with the Office of the Appellate Defender on behalf of Mr. Waterfield. I'd like to reserve five minutes. This case presents an opportunity for the court to reaffirm two very important principles. First, maybe the fundamental principle in our substantive criminal law, which is that generally you don't have a crime unless you have both uh, an unlawful act in actus reus and a culpable mental state, a mens rea. Um, the mens rea presumption is a fundamental part of not only our state law, but really the law of all common law jurisdictions. The second important principle at play here is the primacy of the legislature as the policymaking branch of our government. It is the people's representatives who should make the law. Now, admittedly, the latter of these two principles takes precedence over the former generally. The General Assembly, if it wants to, can create strict liability crimes, um, crimes that dispense with the mens rea requirement. If the people's representatives want to pass laws that make it easier for police and prosecutors to charge and convict people of particular offenses, that is the legislature's prerogative. But that's not what we have in this case, though. Here, Mr. Waterfield was convicted of a crime, not created by the General Assembly, but by administrative agencies. In fact, one of these crimes was created by the proclamation of a single unelected executive official a month prior to the citations were issued. Um, the crime didn't exist a month before it was charged in this case, and based on this record, for all we know, it might not exist today. It may be that our law allows the executive branch to be delegated the ability to create and dispense with crimes, often crimes carrying jail time, like the one at issue in this case, in an ad hoc fashion. It may even be a law that that power can be further delegated and vested in a single executive official. Those issues are not raised in this appeal. But the power to dispense with the mens rea presumption belongs to our General Assembly. And the General Assembly has not declared that these administratively creatively, uh, these administratively created crimes are automatically exempt from the mens rea requirement simply because the administrative officials making up the rules fail to include explicit mens rea language in their regulations. The before, you get, before, before you get too deeply counseled, I hate to interrupt you so early, but since you're presenting a foundation in terms of administrative agencies, uh, opportunities and duties, isn't it properly delegated to administrative agencies from other bodies in government to be able to have the opportunity to, in their specialized knowledge, to be able to uh, enact such regulations as the ones at issue here? Well, no one is disputing in this case, Your Honor, that administrative agencies have crime creation ability that's been delegated to them by the General Assembly. Clearly they have. Um, you know. I think maybe it's probably instructive to kind of give the broad the broad outline of the law on this. Although well, because really, really I'm just trying to follow the lineage of what you're saying. If you're saying the General Assembly is the only body that can enact laws, and if the General Assembly has delegated that authority to administrative agencies, then is it proper to say that only the General Assembly can do this? If the General Assembly has delegated this to administrative agencies to act their specialized knowledge to do so in this area of the law? So with respect to mens rea, our position is that the General Assembly has not, in fact, delegated that authority to the administrative agencies. They have delegated the authority to make crimes, but they have not delegated the authority to abrogate the mens rea presumption. Now, whether, whether the General Assembly can do that, theoretically, is not an issue in this case. I think there may be some delegation issues, but the the it, the question of whether they can is not an issue. The question is whether they have in this case, and our position is that they have not. Um, the the case law tells us that when a statute a statute not a regulation, but when a statute lacks a mens rea uh, language, that whether that creates a, a strict liability crime is essentially a question of statutory interpretation. But Mr. Waterfield wasn't charged with crimes created by the General Assembly. He was charged with, with crimes um, created by administrative officials. In one case, it's a regulation of the Marine Fisheries Commission. Um, 
discussing uh, crab pot usage. In another, it's uh, it's a violation of a proclamation of a single official uh, prescribing the certain dimensions acceptable for gill nets in a fishing operation. Uh, this, Mr. Grant, I, I assume this is going to come up at some point, so I'm going to bring it up now. Um, I, I suspect your colleague will argue in response to what you just said that in fact, the, the criminal offense is created by GS 113-135, which sure. is a statute enacted by the General Assembly. And it, essentially what we've got here is a situation in which the General Assembly says, uh, administrative agency, you can make, you can adopt regulations and members of the public, if you violate those regulations, you are uh, subject to criminal penalties. And so I think his contention is, in fact, the crime is committed, created by the General Assembly, not by the administrative agency. I mean, what, what's your response to that? Sure, you anticipated right where I was going to go next, Your Honor. Um, oh, you sorry, know, sorry, to, sorry to interrupt you then. No, it's your court. <laughs> um, 113.135a says, um, I think we can fairly characterize it as an enabling statute. It says that any person who violates a provision of the subchapter or any rule adopted by the Marine Fisheries Commission um, is guilty of a misdemeanor. So the state's position, at least as I understand it, is that 113.135a basically gives these agencies and in fact even individual executive authorities carte blanche to not only create crimes, um, but to eliminate crimes at will in a way that totally, um, without any sort of democratic participation, abrogates the men's ray requirement. It's theory, the state's theory in this case, in essence, is that the enabling statute doesn't mention a mental state, so it's all wide open. Well, and, 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 and is, your, is it your understanding of the state's position that we would look to see whether there is a mens rea requirement to the administrative regulation or to the statute? Well, I think, I think the answer to that is you look to the administrative regulation. I mean, the, the 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 regulations are violations of the regu of the regulations are criminal by virtue of the enabling statute. Right. But to say that the enabling statute defines the crime, I don't think is exactly accurate. It it puts the cart before the horse. The General Assembly isn't drafting the elements of the crime here. All the enabling statute says is that violations are misdemeanors. So the elements of the crime, including presumably any mens rea requirement that would follow. Um, are being drafted, or in this case, not drafted by the administrative bodies. So the common law presumption against strict liability is about as ancient and pervasive a principle as we have in our criminal law. It seems a little odd to say that the General Assembly bears the burden of telling these agencies, hey, the crimes you, you create and are authorized to create, uh, you know, they have to contain a mens rea because that's generally how we, how we do things. We generally presume that state actors know and abide the law. So it seems it seems strange to say that the lack of mens rea language, for instance, in the enabling statute means that these are all it's a wide open field and administrative agencies and single elected officials can not only create these crimes and eliminate them at will, but also totally disregard any principles of mens rea in so doing. But I think it's important to note that even in cases where we're talking about statute, statutory crime, not regulatory crimes, crime created directly by the legislature, we don't automatically presume the lack of explicit mens rea language means that it's a strict liability crime. You know, as the little, as the little case law we have in this area makes clear, and this is a quote from Hales, which is sort of the, one of the first cases where this court recognized the General Assembly's ability to create strict liability crimes. Hales says that whether criminal intent is a necessary element of a statutory offense is a matter of construction to be determined from the language of the statute in view of its manifest purpose and design. The U.S. Supreme Court agrees in the Alanis case, where it says the fact that a statute does not specifically require any mental state, however, does not mean that none exists. We have repeatedly held that the mere omission from a criminal enactment of any mention of criminal intent should not be read as dispensing with it. Chief Justice Exum, granted in a concurring opinion from this court, said, our traditional rule is that when the General Assembly does not specify whether guilty knowledge or mens rea is required, it's necess the necessity of, ex of its existence will nonetheless be implied. So you look at all that, and basically what you have is a situation where even when the legislature is creating a crime that doesn't contain explicit mens rea language, we don't automatically presume that it's a strict liability crime. Our courts 
use the tools of statutory interpretation um, to determine what the intent of the legislature was. Um, Grant, you know, let, let, me, let me ask you about that. Uh, um, in the language of 113-135, um, the legislature clearly delegates to the Marine Fisheries Commission or the Wildlife Resources Commission um, authority to create misdemeanors, right? Correct. Um, what are you saying, if anything, is language that's missing to permit them to create a strict liability misdemeanor? Does it specifically need to use the words? Not I think mens rea or intent in some way? Well, I think there, there are a few ways that we could interpret the statute as, as providing that authority, again, assuming that authority is even something that's permitted. Um, you know, the General Assembly could have said, you know, without regard to intent, or it could have said, you know, um, it could have enabled the Marine Fisheries Commission specifically to make strict liability crimes. The, the, the troubling thing is that mens rea is not this, it is not sort of optional in the sense of, um, you know, well, it's a 50-50 whether or not a crime contains mens rea. Crimes contain mens rea, period, and the General Assembly has the authority in drafting statutes to dispense with it. And, you know, if the court is interpreting a statute to determine whether or not it creates a strict liability crime, it has to use all of the tools of statutory interpretation to make that, to make that determination. Um, we don't have an explicit indication here, certainly not an explicit implication, and we would argue not even an implicit implication, that these crimes can be created without having strict liability. And I think it's important to note that it's questionable whether even the commission itself believes that it has this authority or intended to exercise it. I'd like to direct the court's attention to pages two and three of the record on appeal, which contain this, the form citations that were issued to Mr. Waterfield. Um, these form citations have pre-printed language on them that say that the named defendant did unlawfully and willfully, and then, you know, various blanks and checkboxes to articulate the crime being charged. Presumably, the, the Marine Fisheries Commission is the party creating these forms, yet they include this willful language in the charging language and the default charging language to apply to all citational, you know, all citable offenses within its domain. Why is that language there? If not for the fact that even the commission understands that an offense has to be at minimum willful in order to constitute a crime. Um, in fact, the presence of this charging language on the document is what kind of ticked off defense counsel at trial to this issue at all, or, or how the sort of the genesis of this issue at trial was the, the, the defense lawyer appeared to argue to the jury in closing that Mr. Waterfield's um, omissions were not willful. And then after closing argument, which was not recorded, the, the parties got together and the judge had a conference and asked, you know, is these, you know, are you contending that there's a mental state to this? And, and the lawyer said, well, I'm just arguing the charging document, Your Honor. So Mr. Waterfield prepared a defense based on this instrument, on this charging document, and then totally had kind of the legs cut out from under him at trial when he tried to argue the, the plain language of the charging instrument. Now, we raised that issue in the Court of Appeals. We did not include it in the PDR. I'm not arguing it here today, but it, it is instructive to look at what the commission is doing in its role as, as the enforcer of these provisions and look at their form citation and see that, you know, they might be of the opinion that, that these have to be committed willfully themselves. And, and in terms of the willfulness instruction, um, you know, as for the specific mental state we think should apply, I have to confess that's something of a secondary consideration for Mr. Waterfield. I mean, he, he simply wants his day in court where a properly instructed jury will be able to consider his testimony and his evidence um, in, in making a verdict and reaching a verdict, something that the 2018 jury in this case was not permitted to do. But you know, we've argued in the brief that we believe willfulness is the minimal, minimal mens rea that should apply. And I think there's a few reasons for that. One, 
we have old case law, admittedly fairly old case law from this court that says when a statute is passed, doesn't have a mens rea, yet we nevertheless, uh, as a court, believe that it it requires mens rea, we infer willful. Um, and willful has been defined as basically without justification or excuse. And at least to my ears, that sounds about right. We certainly aren't arguing that these are specific intent crimes. Willfulness works as sort of a default mens rea. It strikes a good balance between protecting people like Mr. Waterfield without making law enforcement's job too difficult in enforcing these regulations. And as I noted, that's kind of the mental state that the commission appears to be operating under um, as evidenced so, by its citation. So you don't think that the willful, willfully uh, is actually uh, that he uh, willfully down uh, the crab traps or willfully unattended uh, uh, the gill nets. Uh, you're saying that willfully means that he uh, knew that what he was doing violated um, the regulations. No, no, that that actually brings me to a point I wanted to discuss, which is uh, an argument the state makes in its brief that I think is a little mistaken. We're arguing willfulness, as this court has defined it, means simply without justification or excuse. In, in the context of this case, it's Mr. Waterfield literally not being able to go get and fish his equipment because he's gotten into a car accident and is suffering from stage four throat cancer. Um, it's you know, a, it's and, a, and Mr. Mr. Grant, yeah, I was going to ask you this too, but since you've gotten there, let me ask you this real quickly. Uh, I understand your argument with respect to lack of willfulness with respect to gill nets. I mean, there's contention I had a wreck and, and, and therefore I couldn't get back to, to get them in. How, how is there a willfulness defense specifically to the crab pot violation? Right. Where, so where he, where he denies that he left them unattended for the period of time that this that the uh, boss are alleged. Sure. So denied not fishing them. Excuse me. Right. Right. So, like I mentioned, closing argument in this and opening for that matter, neither of which were recorded. So I, I frankly don't know what trial counsel's argument to the jury was with respect to willfulness before the judge. But you put yourself hypothetically in the position. Let, let's say we were to agree with you that there needed to be a willfulness mens rea element to the crab pot. Right. Yeah, so I, 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 how, how is there a lack of willfulness defense to the crab pot violation that is material given the evidence in this case? Well, I think I think a reasonable jury could hear Mr. Waterfield's, um, you know, so it's it's almost like sort of like self-defense where you're entitled to a self-defense instruction, even if your own testimony doesn't necessarily uh, give rise to it or contradicts it. I believe there's because there has to be some evidence from which you could find. Uh, of a, course, a your lack, honor. Lack of lack of uh, you know, self self-defense instruction was appropriate. Oh, given, the, given the given the the sum total of the evidence in this case, where is where is there any evidence that uh, there was a lack of willfulness for the crab pot violation? He either left it, he either didn't come back and get his pots cleaned out, or he his testimony is I did what I was supposed to. Where is there a lack of a willfulness uh, component to that evidentiary dispute? Well, I think a jury can accept some, all, or none of any particular witness's testimony, and I think a jury could conclude that Mr. Waterfield's illness prevented him from pulling up the crab pots, even if his own testimony was, "I just didn't, I just didn't leave them; they're just lying. I, I didn't, I fished those, and they were just wrong." Um, in any event, it, it is a jury question, and I understand that the court has to do a prejudice analysis for each charge and kind of puts itself in the position of the jury. But this is a jury question, and I, and I think it's important to note that Mr. Waterfield was charged with three different crimes in this case. And even though under the instructions as given to it by the trial court, there's really no defense to any of these. I mean, they're his pots, they're his nets, he's not there when, when they're found. There really isn't a whole lot for the jury to acquit him on given the instructions that were given to it. Now, our position is if they had been properly instructed, that result would have been different. But well, even counsel, yeah, so speaking of the properness of the instructions, uh, is the Court of Appeals correct that uh, there are no pattern jury instructions on these charged offenses? 
You are correct, Your Honor. There are no pattern jury instructions for for these for this offense, and really for any of of many of these hundreds or thousands of regulatory crimes that are out there. Is it your contention then that the trial court, uh, with the input, of course, of the counsel uh, there for the trial, uh, that trial court was in error in taking the regulations at issue? In crafting from the instructions, what the elements would be as to the commission of the crime, if proven. Yes, we believe that it was plain error. You know, we concede that uh, that a jury instruction request was not tendered, and the issue therefore is not properly preserved. So, Mr. Waterfield is limited to plain error here. But even though there's no pattern instruction, the, the judge still has an obligation to properly instruct on the law. And and you know, this whole case is about did the judge uh, fail to include a mens rea and in so doing air. So, yes, justice Morgan, it would be our position that the trial court aired in this case, and that error rises to the level of plain error. Do you acknowledge as well that, uh, there was not a request by defense counsel for any inclusion of any words such as willfulness or intent or anything like that? Uh, I would, I would agree that trial counsel did not do as much as he could have to preserve this issue for appeal. Um, trial counsel certainly was sort of hinting around at it. They had a whole discussion about, does this require willfulness? Well, we think it does your honor. Well, I don't think it does, but, but trial counsel never made a request for a, an instruction on mens rea. And I, I think with all candor, justice Morgan, that's why we've had to raise this as a plain error issue. Uh, it's not as if this is not a situation where we're raising plain error and like nobody considered this a trial or this wasn't discussed or, or contemplated by the trial court. Everyone knew that this was an issue at trial. It's just that trial counsel never made the request for the instruction. And so, and so here we are. Um, Justice Irvin, just following back up with your point. I'm sorry, Justice Berger, did you have something? Oh, no, go, go ahead and answer Justice Irvin's question. Um, so, so just to, to follow up on that, uh, I'll just put a bow on the prejudice piece. Um, you know, this jury acquitted Mr. Waterfield of one of these crab pot violations, even though there's doesn't seem to be a lot of reason why it would have. So, you know, I think it's hard for this court to say, based on this record, that the prejudice applies only to one prong and not the others. I mean, we don't know what a jury is going to do really when it gets in the box, but not instructing the jury on the appropriate on an element of the offense, the appropriate mens rea is a is. I mean, that's almost definitionally a fundamental error with the conduct of the trial. The jury has to be given the right law in order to reach a correct decision. And so that would be our argument with respect to the prejudice. I think Mr. Crabtree and I are both in agreement that this court doesn't have to address plain error prejudice in the first instance if it uh, if it agrees with us. It can always remand to the Court of Appeals to decide that question. Um, that's really, I think, the court's prerogative. But uh, I think Mr. Crabtree and I are in agreement that the court can do that if it, if it wishes. It can remand to the Court of Appeals or it can decide the issue here. Um, either would be appropriate. Counsel, if I could, um, and, and sort of two parts. First, what is your understanding of the difference between an infraction and a misdemeanor? And how does that understanding uh, come into play with regard to the wording of 113-135A? where it only includes misdemeanor uh, and ex excludes infractions. My understanding of the distinction between a misdemeanor and an infraction is that um, a, a misdemeanor may carry jail time and an infraction may not. Um, I don't have much more of, of, a, of a knowledge of the distinction between those two things. You know, we sort of know just from common common practice that that infractions tend to be things like speeding or um, you know blowing a stop sign or something like that where even if the defendant pleads guilty even if he's got uh, a, a history or a record there's no risk of jail time misdemeanors do carry jail time in fact mr waterfield was sentenced to 20 days in jail um, suspended for supervised probation but jail nonetheless um, based on his violation of these crimes, again, one of which was created by somebody 30 days before he violated it. And it would be our position that the fact that there is jail time at these cases weighs in favor of this court taking a real close look at whether these statutes are authorized the imposition of strict liability or whether these enabling statutes provide the administrative agencies the ability 
to create strict liability crimes. We're talking about putting people in jail as uh, the US Supreme Court in Staples um, points out, there's a sort of a multi-factor balancing test. Let's assume this were a statutory crime. There's a, there's a multi-factor balancing test the court would undergo to determine whether the legislature intended to impose strict liability. And one of the considerations is, you know, the severity of, of the potential penalty. Here, again, we're not talking about just fines, we're talking about potential jail time. And so I think the court should be very careful um, at, at scrutinizing the situation and ensure that mens rea, which again is a fundamental principle, is, is um, you know, not blithely disregarded merely for lack of an explicit mens rea language in both the enabling statute or the administrative regulations that we're, that we're discussing today. Uh, it looks like I'm cutting into my rebuttal time, so unless there are questions at this time, I'd uh, reserve the rest. Thank you, counsel. We'll hear from the FLA. Chief Justice. Good morning, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. My name is Taylor Crabtree. I'm with the Department of Justice, arguing on behalf of the state. This case is about upholding the General Assembly's decision to provide strong protections for the state's vitally important fisheries resources. The question before this court is, like Mr. Grant said, a simple one of statutory interpretation. Does section 113-135 have a mens rea requirement? We think the answer is no, and we think that's true for three reasons. First, the text of the statute does not contain any mention of any mens rea requirement. Second, other related statutes confirm that the General Assembly understood and intended section 113-135 to not require proof of mens rea. And finally, Section 113-135 is a public welfare offense, a type of crime that has a long history of being treated as a strict liability offense. For these reasons, we respectfully request that this court affirm the judgment of the Court of Appeals. Now, let's start with the text. Section 113-135A provides, in relevant part, any person who violates any provision of the subchapter or any rule adopted by the Marine Fisheries Commission or the Wildlife Resources Commission as appropriate pursuant to the authority of this subchapter is guilty of a misdemeanor. As you'll notice, this statutory language contains no mention of willfulness, knowledge, or any other language signifying a mens rea element. It's unambiguous. And generally when confronted with unambiguous text, this court treats that text as dispositive. Indeed, in Watson Seafood and Poultry Co. versus George W. Thomas Incorporated, this court held that in the absence of language signifying a mens rea element, it's the obvious intent of the legislature to not require one. Now, the language chosen for section 113-135 stands in stark contrast to other similarly, uh, similar statutes where the General Assembly did specifically choose to include a mens rea element. Now, we Actually, let me yes, ask you. Let me ask you the same question that I think I asked Mr. Grant, so that I'll get both of his views on it. Uh, I think I asked him to in, in determining whether there is a specific intent element to an offense like this one, where the General Assembly has made violation of a regulation a crime. Uh, to determine whether we there is a mens rea requirement, do we look to what the General Assembly said? Do we look to the regulation? How, what's analytically, how do we make the determination that uh, a mens rea requirement does or doesn't exist? Honor, I, I think where you look first is to the statute. Uh, you look first to where the General Assembly created the crime and said, you know, at a minimum, uh, someone must be guilty of a violation of these regulations to be guilty of this crime, and here's the penalty that we're going to impose for that. Um, I don't think there's anything preventing the Fisheries Commission from adding mens rea elements uh, itself in defining what, what the regulations require. Um, so I think as a secondary question, you might look to the regulation itself, but I think uh, the, the crime itself is created in when the General Assembly uh, enacts the statute and it sets sort of the threshold, which says, uh, if you violate these regulations, you're guilty of a crime. Um, I, I hope that answers your question, Your Honor. It does, thank you. So we think uh, that- before, Yeah, before you get back to your sure. uh, argument uh, on those additional points, um, I wanna ask you the same question I asked uh, your friend. Um, what does uh, willfully 
mean in the uh, charging documents? I think uh, in the cases that I've read, it's there's a number of formulations, but the most common one that I I was finding was deliberately in violation of law or without justification or excuse. So that's that's the formulation that came up most often when I was uh, looking at how this court has previously described what willfully means. So it, it would, you know, the first part of what you just said. Uh, would tend to be or tend to support well uh, needed to know what was that the action was unlawful. Uh, uh, so it, it seemed like your colleague said that uh, the term willful should mean uh, without uh, uh, justification or excuse. What's wrong? With, and that was the second part of the definition you read. Uh, why should that not be part of uh, the jury instruction or the jury is told uh, the person, you know, uh, uh, unlawfully and willfully uh, that they uh, intended uh, to be fishing or uh, using crab pots and that uh, they did so, they violated this without justification or excuse. Why, why isn't that a good jury instruction? Well, we think that first that that um, we think that this is a strict liability offense and there's no mens rea required. But I, I think this does get to me get to a, a secondary point that I'd like to raise, and that's that um, whether there is a mens rea or not for uh, for this statutory offense, it doesn't preclude common law offenses like necessity or justification. So uh, Mr. Waterfield chose not to raise a defense of justification. Uh, at trial, uh, it's not clear why he didn't, but whether there's a mens rea or not uh, doesn't change his entitlement to that, to those common law offense, common law defenses of necessity, justification, uh, impossibility, those sorts of offenses. If, if, if he wanted to raise those defenses at trial, whether there is or is not a mens rea uh, doesn't change that. We think the problem with willfully in particular is uh, the fact that it has been defined previously by this court to mean deliberately in violation of law and uh, we think that connotes at least some element of knowledge of the wrongfulness of the actions and we, we do think that would work substantial violence to this statutory scheme um, but but we don't think that uh, mr waterfield is precluded from offering evidence of his justification we just think that it doesn't have to do with the mens rea element, but simply the availability of common law defenses. It's, so, Your Honor, we, we point out a number of examples in our brief of other statutes that are similarly structured where the General Assembly has chosen to expressly include a mens rea element. And we think those are instructive by comparison to show the General Assembly knows how to include a mens rea element when specifically dealing with statutes that impose criminal liability for the violation of administrative regulations. And it simply chose not to do so here. I'm not gonna run through all of those examples, but I'm just gonna highlight one of, one of those examples for the court today. And that's section 113-187B. That statutory section provides that any owner of a vessel who knowingly permits it to be used in violation of any provision of this article or its implementing regulations is guilty of a misdemeanor. So again, it's a very similar. Yes, Your Honor. I ask you about the distinction because it, it does seem that the statute you just read from is establishing the elements of what the offense is, whereas 113-135 is just um, saying what the penalties are. So it, 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 it seems to me, I, I'm not clear why we shouldn't read 113-135 in conjunction with the common law um, and where the text doesn't specifically, it's not setting out the elements of the crime. It doesn't specifically say anything about um, mental, the mental state needed or not needed for the offense. Why, why, shouldn't, why wouldn't the default be that we read this statute 
consistent with and in conformity with common law, unless the General Assembly clearly indicates they are modifying or abrogating common law. Two things, Your Honor. First, uh, in the cases that have have discussed uh, this this um, these kinds of public welfare offenses, um, including Morissette at the U.S. Supreme Court that the the defendant cites repeatedly, and and this court's decision in Watson Seafood and Poultry Co. Uh, the court has distinguished between common law offenses, uh, statutory or uh, common law offenses that simply codify common law crimes, where uh, a inferring mens rea might be particularly appropriate, um, and statutory offenses that have no common law analog, where there's no reason to think that the General Assembly uh, assumed that a mens rea element required. And our contention is that this crime, uh, this particular crime falls into that latter bucket. Second, I, I would have to respectfully disagree that um, section 113-135 doesn't set out the elements of the offense. What it says is, if you violate these regulations, uh, you are guilty of a misdemeanor. It says, it specifies the regulations which constitute the actus reus of the crime, and then it, it declines to set forth a mens rea element. Um, similarly, section 113-187, uh, it, it, it simply just imposes vicarious liability for the violation of those same regulations. It permits the state to prosecute the vessel owner if he knowingly permits the vessel to be used uh, in violation of these administrative regulations. But structurally, it's very similar. Neither uh, set forth the precise actions that violate uh, the statute, instead leaving that to uh, the administrative agency, and, but both do impose uh, criminal liability for the violation of administrative regulations. Um, now, now, we think that the structure of those two statutes show, uh, give good reason why the General Assembly would require mens rea for the one uh, that imposes vicarious liability, but not for the one that imposes direct liability, uh, because you, you impose a, a heightened mens rea for those uh, that aren't necessarily present when the violation occurs um, that doesn't need to be present if uh, the violation if if the liability is imposed directly on the violator himself let, let me ask you about um, you, you indicated that the common law uh, might include um, uh, justification or excuse was the jury informed anywhere uh, about that possible defense, uh, specifically with regard to uh, the net violation, uh, which uh, that was the defense that seemed to be offered? No, Your Honor. It's my understanding that the defendant never requested such an instruction. There's a pattern just there is a pattern jury instruction for justification, but defense counsel never requested such an instruction and never and and as as uh, my friend indicated this morning never indicated any problems with the jury instruction at all and uh, and as I, as far as I'm aware uh, counsel even on appeal and before this court has never raised any issue with the failure to instruct on the justification theory of defense So we think that in addition to the statutory text of section 113-135 itself, several other statutes confirm that the legislature meant what it said when it enacted section 113-135 without a mens rea element. In fact, the very next statutory subsection, section 113-135.1, confirms that the General Assembly understood section 113-135 to create a strict liability offense. Now, recall that section 113-135 creates criminal liability for the violation of either Marine Fisheries Commission rules or Wildlife Resources Commission rules. Section 135.1 then imposes certain limitations on the penalties that can be imposed under section 113-135 if the violation is based on a violation of Wildlife Resources Commission rules. Now, importantly for our purposes, the General Assembly chose to explain in the statutory text its purpose behind limiting the penalties for Wildlife Resource Commission rule violations. And that is to, quote, prevent unsuspecting members of the public 
from being subject to criminal penalties for violating Wildlife Resources Commission rules. Uh, now, we think that that shows that the General Assembly was aware that Section 113-135 did indeed impose criminal liability on, quote, unsuspecting defendants, i.e. those without mens rea. It then chose to limit the penalties for violation of Wildlife Resource Commission rules, but not Marine Fisheries Commission rules. And importantly, it took no steps to uh, limit the substantive reach of Section 113-135 itself, confirming that it still uh, indeed extends to, quote, unsuspecting defendants. Now, there are also other statutory directives that would potentially be frustrated by imposing a willfulness requirement in Section 113-135. For example, in Section 113-221.1, which expressly provides the authority for uh, issuing proclamations, one of which Mr. Uh, Waterfield was convicted of violating, um, and it also sets posting and notice requirements uh, for the Fisheries Commission so that it can ensure that every person who's potentially uh, subject to those proclamations has, a, has, has uh, an awareness of those proclamations. It expressly provides in that section that actual notice of a proclamation is not a defense in a criminal prosecution for a violation of one of those proclamations. Now, if this court were to read willfulness into section 113-135, the prosecution will be required to show, as I've discussed with Justice Newby earlier, that the, uh, the defendant acted deliberately in violation of the law. Now, one can readily imagine a defendant arguing at the trial that he could not have acted deliberately in violation of a law that he had no awareness of. Uh, thus, in effect, backdooring in the defense that's expressly prohibited by Section 113-221.1. Now, if, if you just apply the text of the two statutes as written, there's no potential for conflict. It's only when you start reading in to Section 113-135, language the General Assembly chose to omit, that you create this potential for a direct conflict. So we know that text, the text of Section 113-135 itself and of related statutes all support the idea that the General Assembly did not intend to require proof of mens rea for violation of Section 113-135. But there are still more reasons to believe that the General Assembly deliberate choice was to make this a strict liability offense. And that's because it falls into a well understood category of criminal offenses that this court and others have recognized may be prosecuted without regards to mens rea. In this court's seminal case of Watson Seafood and Poultry Co. versus George W. Thomas Incorporated, this court recognized the well established category of public strict liability public welfare offenses. In that case, this court recognized that certain offenses designed to protect public welfare and safety may be punished without regards to mens rea, it, so long as they meet certain uh, circumstances. Drawing on numerous precedent from uh, other states and federal courts, this court laid out several factors to look for in defining strict a strict liability public welfare offense. First, there's a clear legislative intent to impose strict liability. Second, the provision is designed to protect public welfare and safety. Third, the provision would be difficult to enforce given the large number of minor offenses if mens rea were required. And finally, relatively light penalties did accompany the violation. Now, as the Court of Appeals recognizes, recognized, Section 113-135 checks all those boxes. First, as we've discussed today, there's a clear legislative intent that mens rea not be required. Second, uh, the offense is designed to protect public, the state's vitally important public fisheries. Third, it'd be difficult to enforce in, in light of the large number of minor offenses. And finally, there's relatively light penalties that accompany the violation. Um, now to, to Justice Berger's early question about the difference between uh, infractions and uh, violation and, and misdemeanors and, and Mr. Grant's response, um, Staples, the, ca the case uh, Mr. Grant cited, uh, specifically says that, specifically distinguishes between offenses that carry only uh, a, a relatively short jail sentence and, and 
and offenses that uh, carry, carry a longer prison sentence for purposes of determining whether, uh, in accordance with the public welfare offense doctrine, whether an offense is, uh, a sentence carried by an offense is, is light or, or harsher. So we think that a, a maximum sentence of 60 days as this case, it's this misdemeanor carries even uh, with a, and that only coming into play with a large number of prior violations. We think that that's clearly on the light side of the line. So in some section 113-135 is a classic public welfare offense. And that the General Assembly was following this well-trod path straight further strengthens the already strong case that the General Assembly meant what it said when it decided to uh, impose criminal liability for the violation of these fisheries regulations without regards to mens rea. So, so um, before I totally let go of my uh, willfully questions, um, it, it, is it the state's position that willfully is the is covered by uh, what I uh, posed earlier? Um, uh, with regard to if somebody's driving a boat and a crab trap falls out, uh, it's there uh, and they didn't intend to fish it. They simply, it fell out of their boat. Uh, that would, is that the kind of willfulness that you willfully put the nets out, willfully put the crab pots out? Uh, that's the kind of willfulness that's included in the charging documents. Let me make sure I'm understanding your question. Is, is your question, is that the kind of willfulness that we, we think should not be included in the, in the charging documents? No, no, the charging document itself says unlawfully and willfully. Okay, willfully has got to have some meaning. So, uh, my assumption is that the state would say, yeah, willful just means you put the pots out, you put the net out, uh, intending to do what they do, uh, as opposed to um, any other aspect of willfulness. All right. Look, I, I'm sorry for the confusion. Uh, our contention is that the, the inclusion of willfully in that charging document is surplusage and that it was an unintentional surplusage. Um, and that it, it's not part of the offense at all. Uh, so we don't think that um, that willfully it is any part of the statute and should not be required for proof of this offense. So if I have a crab pot that falls out of my boat, uh, not intending to use that pot at all to catch crabs, and it stays in there and wildlife finds it, uh, I have violated this, even though <laughs> I never intended to use it to catch crabs. I think technically, your honor, you, you, you have violated this prohibition. I, I don't think the wildlife officer is going to going to charge you or, or uh, um, uh, prosecute you for that. Uh, but, but you have technically violated just as if you weren't looking down at your speedometer and uh, went 70 instead of 55. Uh, you've, you've technically violated uh, speed limit, just uh, even though you didn't didn't mean to. But I was intentionally driving the car. Uh, you're either intentionally fishing or you're not intentionally fishing. Um, uh, uh, surely, um, if an individual is given a charging document and it uses the word willfully, uh, how can they not rely on that as part of what the state has to prove? Uh, to call it surplusage uh, means that, uh, you know, the, the individual that was given these uh, uh, citations could, I, I mean, how does the state not have to prove what they've alleged? Your Honor, I this court's case law is clear that when a charging document erroneously includes additional allegations uh, that aren't required for the substantive offense, the state is not required to, to prove those elements. Um, and uh, as Mr. Grant acknowledged today, he raised this argument for, before the Court of Appeals and he chose, uh, and the Court of Appeals rejected that 
argument uh, based on this court's case law. And uh, Mr. Grant chose not to file a PER on that uh, on that issue. And so that issue is, is not properly before the court today. Um, but I do think this court's case law is clear that uh, if there's additional allegations in a charging document uh, that are not necessary for the substantive uh, the substantive elements of the defense, it's, it's surplusage and the state's not required to prove those things just because it included them in, in a charging document. What, in, in addition to that, it, it seems to me that if you've got a situation, if, if the chief is driving his boat out in Elmboro Sound and a crab pot falls out of it without anybody having uh, intentionally discharged it, wouldn't he be entitled to rely upon a defense of accident? Yes, Your Honor, that's a that's a that's a great point. I, I think that's. I, mean, I don't. I don't think I. I haven't understood your argument with respect to mens rea to say that a defendant in the position of uh, Mr. Waterfield in this case, if they had some other defense that was available, be it accident. I'm, I'm having a hard time seeing how you could have self-defense in in this kind of environment, but an accident would certainly seem to apply. Uh, there's nothing about the fact, there's nothing about the absence of a mens rea element that would preclude the assertion of some other common law defense, is there? Certainly not, Justice Irvin, and 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 I didn't mean to imply that that we argue that those common law defenses don't apply. Indeed, as I mentioned earlier, we we think that uh, the defense that that Mr. Waterfield was was actually seemed to be relying on at trial is more properly raised as a common law defense as a defensive justification. Um, and, and the fact that he he chose he didn't choose to seek an instruction on that, we, we think that that shouldn't uh, shouldn't mean that the court sort of contorts the law around mens rea and around section 113-135. Uh, we do think it's important that uh, the court recognizes that some of the problems that would be uh, that would flow from adopting uh, Mr. Waterfield's proposal. So if if the state were indeed required to prove uh, willfulness for each of these probable for each of these, uh, just take, for example, the crab pot violations in every case, uh, the defendant could simply say, oh, oh, I, I forgot. I'm sorry. I, I thought I I thought I left that crab pot, put that crab pot out on Saturday. Turns out it was last Wednesday, and the prosecution would be uh, subjected to proving that he in, he he in fact knew that he was leaving that out uh, for for an excess of five days. And that simply, sorry, I, yes, I don't, sorry to interrupt you, but I I know your time's getting a little short, and I just want to understand um, why the state draws a distinction between the mens rea requirement, which is a common law doctrine, and um, the various affirmative defenses that are also common law doctrines, because the statute doesn't explicitly say that a, de um, a defendant um, facing a misdemeanor charge for violation of these regulations is entitled to affirmative defenses. So why do we treat one element of the common law distinct from the other element of the common law? Two responses. First, as I understand these courts precedent, there's uh, common law defenses remain available to, to, to criminal prosecutions unless there's, there's some reason to think otherwise. Um, in 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 this court has applied common law defenses to uh, has held that common law defenses are in fact available um, even when dealing with statutory crimes. Um, the common law uh, history that I was referring to earlier when discussing the distinction between common law offenses and statutory offenses comes more into play when trying to discern the legislature's intent. When the legislature is acting against a common law backdrop, creating a crime like theft uh, or, or some other uh, crime that has a long common law history, it's more reasonable to assume the General Assembly meant to incorporate the historical common law history of that particular kind of offense. Uh, whereas when creating a statutory offense for which there's no common law analog, there's no reason to think the General Assembly intended to incorporate any common law backdrop because there's no common law backdrop to crab pot violation to incorporate. 
but but then why are we why does the state believe that we nevertheless incorporate the common law backdrop of of affirmative defenses to this statutory statutorily created crime as i understand it this court's never this court and i'm not aware of other courts have ever taken the position that uh common law defenses are not available to statutory offenses uh, it's certainly not the position that i'm taking here today um, and it, we would not take the position that, um, for example, justification, necessity, and possibility, these sorts of common law offenses are not available in a prosecution, in this sort of prosecution. I, I just want to address one final point. I see my time is drawing to a close. And that's uh, to follow up on some of Your Honor's questions from earlier about who created this offense. We think this court's case law, uh, particularly in State versus Southern Railway and State versus Dudley, um, is clear that the General Assembly created this crime when it created, uh, specified the regulations and defined the criminal penalty that would be attached. Uh, thank you, thank you, thank you, Council. Thank you. Uh, rebuttal. Thank you, Your Honor. Uh, just briefly, Justice Earls, just quickly to your point, um, as the amicus points out in its brief, 4-1 of our general statute says that the common law is in place essentially until the General Assembly um, overrules it or, or amends it. Um, you know, the state's argument gets it backward. Just as we presume that the common law defenses are available in this case, and I wish defense counsel had raised a common law defense, but um, that doesn't change the issue of mens rea. Just as we, as we presume those defenses exist because they are common law defenses not abrogated, we presume mens rea exists because it is the default. And unless the General Assembly indicates that it is not to be there by, say, drafting a statute um, which suggests that it's not intended to have mens rea, we presume it exists. That is the rule in this jurisdiction. Um, Mr. Trans, before, before we, I'm sorry I interrupted somebody and I talked enough, I'll yield. No, go ahead, Your Honor. No, I was, I was, uh, I mean, it's, Typically, my understanding of the strict liability cases that we talked about in this argument today and in the briefs uh, involve situations in which we are defining the scope of an offense so that the statutory construction question is, is whoever created the offense, did they define that offense in such a manner as to include a mens rea? You typically don't uh, include uh, common law affirmative defenses or things like that, such as accident, self-defense, duress, necessity. You typically don't define those out in defining uh, offenses, do you? No, I think our broader point, Your Honor, though, is simply that the common law is, is permeated throughout our law. Right. And that if statutes are going to change the common law, statutes have to change the common law. And our position, as, as we've discussed at length today, on both sides is that the statute doesn't do that. Um, I, I do want to address uh, quickly um, something that, that Chief Justice Newby, you were uh, curious about. Th this, I want to address that um, the argument the state makes that I think confuses exactly what we're asking for here. Our position is that a willful mens rea is in essence the default mens rea. You can almost think of it as volitional. Um, the state argues that by adhering to the common law requirement of a default mens rea that will basically allow people ignorant of the law to escape prosecution. Wow, there, you know, there sure are a lot of these regulatory crimes and, you know, gosh, I just don't, I can't keep up with them. And, you know, I forgot what day my crab pot was on. We're not asking for a knowingly um, mens rea that, that imports some knowledge to the defendant. Um, ignorance of the law is no excuse and nothing we've argued in our brief or today changes that. Um, you know, and frankly, uh, imposing a willful mens rea doesn't really impose much of a burden on law enforcement or the system generally. It's not as if police are going to issue fewer citations uh, for phishing offenses because there's a willfulness element to the offense. Their, their citations now say that it has to be a willful offense. And I, I kind of bristled a little um, when my colleague called it unintentional surplusage. It's printed on every single citation the Marine Patrol issues. Um, that's quite an oversight. So it's not as if by imposing a willfulness mens rea, 
we are going to make things so difficult. I mean, we trust juries to make these kind of calls all the time about the intent that an individual has. Um, and juries are fully capable of doing that. And that's all Mr. Waterfield is asking for in this case. This is day in court for a jury of his peers and his community to evaluate his testimony, the testimony of the officer who charged him with this, and come to a conclusion as to whether he meant to leave those pots and traps out or if his failure to retrieve the pots were due to something outside of his control um, that prevented him from, from volitionally, volitional, volitionally, easy for me to say, violating the law. So unless your honors have additional questions, I'd simply um, ask uh, or, or indicate that the legislature can pursue the ends of creating strict liability crimes if it wishes to. It hasn't done that in this case. It's given no indication that that was its intent. We presume under the common law that the offenses require mens rea, and for, so for that reason, we would ask the court to reverse the Court of Appeals. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. Thank you both, counsel, Madam Clerk. Oh, yes, oh, yes, oh, yes. The Supreme Court of North Carolina will be in recess for 15 minutes. God save the state and this honorable court. <laughs>